Well, good morning, everyone. Would you stand with me as we go to the text this morning? We do it through a a prayer called Shema. I was talking with someone last week and they said, I'm so glad that we do that because I come each week and oftentimes I, I bring something to church, whether it's a conversation I'm replaying or a worry I have or something that's going on at work. And I'm so glad that Despite everything that's going on, when I say that prayer, it brings me back. It it allows me now to hear from God. And that's really what the prayer is meant to do. It's about to recommit ourselves and God, say, God, whatever is going on outside these walls, I come this morning to hear your word and hear it anew. So say it with me. If you will say it after me, I should say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. We're in the second part of Ruth chapter 3. This is actually a two-part kind of mini-series as we look at this uh, kind of climax to the the book here in chapter 3 as we see this plan develop. So we'll be starting in chapter 9, a little bit after chapter 9, 9b. And it starts with a question. It's the question we left you with last week. It's a question that Ruth gets asked. It's, who are you? And this is what she says. Who are you, Boaz asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your wings over me, since you are my guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me a shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Do not go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So like I said, this is a two-part story. And the second part starts in a vacation house in Old Forge, New York. You see, we were taking an extended family vacation in the Adirondacks with 17 people, which is way too many people. Just, have any of you been on a vacation with that many people? It's just, it's a recipe for disaster most of the time. Now, my extended family growing up was actually pretty close. We did Christmases together every year, family vacations, holidays. But over time, as people got married and as children came, the dynamic changed a little bit. It it began to grow and things really did need to change. An era was over. We just didn't know yet. 
And so we continue to do all the same things we used to do. Has your family ever been in this situation, right, where the next generation has kind of grown, things are getting bigger, you know deep down inside things need to change, but nobody's willing to admit it yet, right? You either have experienced that process or you're in that process right now, and you're trying to figure out what do we do? Well, our family ignored it. We just kept doing the same things we ever do, and this vacation was the pinnacle of it. We're going on our long, extended family, family vacation that since we've been doing since we were kids. But it was getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And what happens is, is despite the new people and the dynamics and literally the space issues, what happened was is there was this building, this underlying tension in the family that had been building really for years, but nothing had happened yet to fully release it until this trip. Maybe you've had this trip before. And I honestly can't remember anymore what triggered it. But everything that had been building for years came out in one hot, messy night. It all just came out. Now that night began a fundamental shift in our family structure. And we never spoke of it again. It just happened that way. But when we do speak of it, we don't speak of it that much, right? When you think of your own family's dirty laundry, a lot of time you don't talk about it much. But when you do, it often boils down to just a few words. For our family, it's the Adirondack vacation. (laughs) We don't need to say anything else. We just say, yeah, well, that changed when the Adirondack vacation happened. And then that's it. We don't have to say anymore, right? Maybe you have your Adirondack vacation too. Things that you don't need to speak of anymore or don't you need to use very many words. You just have to say a few choice things. Now in this first part of the story of Ruth, we looked at, we looked at last week. We looked at Ruth's past. Ruth was a Moabite. They weren't on God's side. She didn't have the right pedigree. They were known for their promiscuity. In fact, the birth of Moab comes from a seduction story of Lot and his daughters. And from that, the whole nation of Moabites were born. And so Naomi devises a plan to get Ruth in the right situation to get redeemed, but not with the right means. You see, Ruth devises a plan that's connected to Ruth's past. And she's asked a fundamental question in the night. Who are you? It's a question that Ruth has to answer. But there's a second part to the story because there's a second character that is in it. And the second part focuses on the other person on the threshing floor, Boaz. Now, Boaz has his own past. He isn't a Moabite. He is a child of Israel. He's on God's side. He has the right family pedigree. But even in the best families, they have their moments And Israel is no exception. Even in the best families in the world, they have their Adirondack moments. And Israel is no different. See, there was a string of deception stories leading up to this point in Israel's history, too. It wasn't just the Moabites. And if my extended family only has to say the Adirondack vacation, Israel's family may have only needed to say, Goats and coats. And everyone would know 
what we're talking about, goats and coats. And the first generation story actually starts with Jacob. Jacob has a brother named Esau. And Jacob is not the firstborn, but he wants Esau's blessing. Jacob was supposed to be the promised child. Rebecca, the mother, knew this. And so she works out a plan, a scheme, to get Jacob that blessing instead of Esau. And as the story goes in Genesis 27, it says this. The first generation story is the story of Jacob. Now my son, Rebecca says, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats. Then Naomi took the best coat of Esau, her older son, which she had had in the house and put them on her younger son, Jacob. And he went to his father and said, my father, yes, my son, he answered, who are you? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. And after Isaac finished blessing him and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting and his father Isaac gave him, asked him, who are you? I am your son, he answered, your firstborn Isaac. And at that, Isaac trembled. So in this first deception story, Rebecca favors her son Jacob. Her desire is for Jacob to receive the blessing of the firstborn over the older son Esau. And so Jacob a goat and brings it to his father Isaac with arms covered by goat hair with his brother's coat on. And Isaac asks the question, who are you? And Jacob deceives him with goats and coats. And when Isaac found out, he trembled. The word for that is charade, which again, is always fun to say when you get the guttural in there, charade. One generation later is the story of Joseph. And it says this. Now Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. I wonder where he learned that from. You pick up everything from your mother, apparently. Now Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And so he made an ornate coat for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a word to him. So, a little further on, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his coat, and they took him and they threw him in a cistern. Then they got Joseph's coat, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the coat in the blood. Genesis 37. So in the second deceptive story, Jacob favors his son Joseph, and his other sons resent Joseph for it. So they throw him in a pit. They steal his robe, or his coat, and they kill a goat, and they pour it on in order to deceive their father. Jacob deceives his fathers with goats, and then his son deceives him with goats and coats. The very next generation is the story of Judah and Tamar. Judah is one of the sons, uh, one of the brothers of Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob. And in Genesis it says this, the very next generation is the story of Judah and Tamar. Tamar took off her widow's coat, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. And then Judah saw her and he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, come, let's get together. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked, I'll send you a young goat 
from my flock. So in this third deceptive story, Judah, one of the brothers of Joseph, marries and has three sons. The firstborn is the son Ur, but Ur and the second son die. They're not, the Bible says they're not good people. And so these two sons die, sound familiar. And so uh, Tamar is married to this firstborn son. She now is in need of redemption. She needs a kinsman redeemer. And you would think, well, the third son, the youngest son, he's the one to do it. But Judah doesn't give her the third son. He hides him from her. And so she waits an endless amount of time waiting to be redeemed, waiting to find a husband that would provide her redemption. Sound familiar? And she decides, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to take matters into my own side and dresses up like a harlot and waits by the roadside waiting for Judah, tricks him into thinking that she is just a woman of the night and they lie together and they have a child. She gets her redemption, but through deceptive means, she puts on a, she takes off her coat, puts on a veil And then when they barter the price, she says, I'll take a goat from you. So Jacob deceives his father involving goats and coats. And then Judah and his older brothers deceive Jacob involving goats and coats. And then Tamar deceives Judah involving goats and coats. Now last week we looked at the story of Lot and the daughters and found that in that story, in that deceptive story, we get the birth of of Moab. And so Ruth literally is the descendants of this Moabite story, this Moabite deception story, this promiscuity in their name that leads her to be in the situation in which she has to uh, do this seductive plan in order to get redemption. Because that's what her family history has always told everyone that she was about. But when we look, who was born of the union of Judah and Tamar? A child by the name of Peretz. And seven generations after Peretz is none other than Boaz. You see, it's this generational stream. And now we come to this night and discover that things are setting up for story number four. But if that's true, the question is, Where's the goats and the coats? If Boaz is the next in line, if we've been looking at Israel's history and seeing that little, quiet, dirty little secret that Israel's had for years and years and years, and we get to this story, and we think this might be the next story, where's the goats and the coats? Well, we find it in Boaz's name. Boaz's name means strength is in him. But the noun that makes up his name is actually driven from the word that means goat. Goats are wayward. They're strong-headed. Think of the parable of the sheep and the goats. And so over time, it eventually came to represent strength. So while we say his name means strength is in him, quite literally his name means a goat is in him. Friends, Boaz got a goat in him. What's he going to do? And then Ruth asks something very specific here. Ruth says, spread your wings, the corner of your wings over me. 
But this word for wings is the word kanaf, and it also can mean an outer layer or a coat. So literally, she says, spread your wings over me, but literally she says, spread your coat over me. The ESV will translate it as wings, but if you have your NIV in front of you, it will probably say garment or coat. She asked the goat to cover her with a goat. Oh, she asked the goat to cover her with a coat. There it is. Now, why would Ruth ask Boaz to redeem her in this way? Right? She should have, could have said a lot of different things. She could have said, marry me. She could have said, redeem me. She could have been a little more forthright, but she doesn't. She asks in a very symbolic way. Why would she ask him to do it this way? Well, redemption in the Hebrew mind is not so much about buying back in a transitional, transactional way. A lot of times in, in Western culture, when we think redemption, we think of like in a transactional way. I need to redeem my coupon or I need to buy something back in order to get it redeemed. But in a Hebrew mind, the concept for redemption was much more about bringing someone in. You brought someone, you re- redeemed someone, you brought someone in. This week, my son Micah got into some pretty big trouble. Now, we have a rule in our family because my daughter, Mia, she likes to get her nails painted every once in a while, but we don't trust her with the nail polish because we don't trust her. So she oftentimes, if she spills things a lot, and nail polish is something you can't get off clothing, you can't get off sheets, you can't get off things. And so the rule in our house is, if you want your nails painted, mama does it. Or at least mama's right there waiting for you. And everybody knows that, including Micah. Well, just a few nights ago, uh, Mia asked to get her nails uh, done. And so we were up on our bed. Molly was painting her nails. And Mike and I were doing something back. And we came upstairs. We were getting ready for bed. And our attention was diverted for one second, right? That's always the famous last word. Our attention was diverted for one second. And when we looked back, there was Micah holding the nail polish remover, and spilling it all over the bed, all over the comforter. And this wasn't just any comforter. This was like our really nice comforter, right? This is the one Molly got for her birthday, and we found it, and we got it on sale, and it was like really expensive, and we were so uh, excited when we found it, right? This was something that meant a lot to to Molly. And, you know, as a a mother of three kids, if you know, you don't get very many nice things, right, When when you have kids. Friends, there ain't no fury like a mama fury, let me tell you. And Micah knew it. Immediately, sorry, sorry, sorry. Into your bed! Door slam, boom. And he was banished. (laughs) The sounds of whimpers coming from the bed. And immediately, you know, Molly's grabbing the thing and she's trying to wash it out. You know, we can't let it dry and we're washing it out. We're getting nail polish remover and we're blotting it. We're doing all this stuff. And it took us quite a while to get it going and to to get it better. Uh, We actually did a pretty good job with it. Bright red nail polish. But in the time, it was, it was evening time, we were getting for, ready for bed. In the time that it took for us to do this, Micah cried himself to sleep. He fell asleep. 
So all night, he, cried. He, he was in his bed with the door still closed. He was banished. Morning came. I heard rustling moving in the bedroom. I don't think if he, he was quite sure if he could open that door or not. But not too long after that, he found a waiting mom in his doorstep. And what position do you think she took? Right? Arms stretched out. This, in, in a Hebrew mind, this is, the, this is the symbol, this is the sign, this is the picture of redemption that you get brought back in. That you come, come around, come under my wing. You get brought back in. That, friends, is the story. That, friends, is the idea of redemption. And this actually became the primary image for redemption in the Bible, is a God with an outstretched arm. We read about it in places like Psalm 136. It says this, For his steadfast love endures forever. He brought Israel from out of Egypt into his steadfast love, which endures forever, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. For his steadfast love endures forever. You see, redemption wasn't reserved for times simply of forgiveness either. It was also for comfort, for protection, for acceptance, any time you wanted to bring someone back in. Now, here's where the coat comes in. Because in those days, men used to wear these sort of these outer layers, these coats, so to speak. And today, they are represented in these sort of these prayer shawls. Maybe you've seen one before. And what they would do as they wore it, and it was time for redemption, whether it was acceptance or forgiveness or just bringing back in, they would give the symbol, the outstretched arms, And over time, they said, it looks a little like wings. And so this became an image of a God that comes with outstretched arms so that we can hide hide under the shadow of his wings. It's redemption. It's to bring back in. It says this in Psalm 91, the Lord shall cover you with his feathers, And under his wings, you shall take refuge. And so when she tells Boaz to spread the corner of your kanaf over me, she is saying, redeem me, bring me in with an outstretched arm. Let me take refuge under the shadow of your wings. And she uses this this phrase specifically for a few different reasons. One was because this was a common way you actually asked someone to marry you. Which would make sense too, right? Because when you redeem someone, when you get married, you bring someone into the family. So one of the ways that you would do this is you'd say, come under the shadow of my wings. It was actually specifically meant as marriage language. And so when when Ruth says this, she's not just saying generally, will you redeem me? Will you protect me? Will you? He's already, Boaz has already done that. She's asking something very specific here. She says, will you marry me? Will you bring me under your wings? Will you protect me and bring me in? I am a Moabite. Will you bring me into your family? But she asks it for another way too. She asks it because she is going to use Boaz's words against him. Husbands, 
Has your wife ever used something you've said in the past against you later on? Yeah, no one's answering that question, right? Uh, right? Wow, we've got some, po- some fingers pointing. She actually uses this. She turns Boaz's words back on him. Because in Ruth chapter 2, in verse 12, Boaz meets Ruth and he tells her, I've heard about all these great things you've done. I've heard how you've been faithful to your, your, your mother-in-law, uh, Naomi. I heard the kindness that you've done in extending that to her. And he says this in, in, chap- in verse 2 or excuse me, in chapter 2, verse 12, he says this, May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose kanaf, under whose wings, you have come to take refuge. So Boaz, in chapter 2, pronounces a blessing over Ruth. He says, I've heard of all the wonderful things you've done. I've heard how you've taken care of your, your, daughter, your mother-in-law, Naomi. May God bless you. May you find refuge. May you find redemption in the shadow of his wings. And now Ruth turns it back on him and says, hey, remember, remember when you said that I deserve to be found under the shadow of someone's wings? Remember when you said that? Well, quit talking and start acting. Gotcha. Last week, Ruth was asked the question that speaks directly to her situation. Who are you? And now she is the one doing the asking. She proposes the thing that speaks directly to his situation. Will you redeem me? Will you stop with the deception? Will you stop and will you act in truth? And will you do the thing that you yourself said that I deserve? And it's the moment of truth. You see, Ruth has family baggage. And the question is, in that question, who are you, is will Ruth live into her family history? And Goaz is the goat man. He comes from the line of family splits and deception and hostilities. His name, he wears it. Anti-redemption. Will he be the next Goats and Coats story? You see, these family stories, the Moabites and the goats, are the biological beginning of both Boaz and Ruth. Ruth, the child of Moab, and Boaz, the child of Peretz. And they unite thematically in this moment. The goat and the Moabite live into a new redemption story. In the moment of truth, we find that the goat and the Moabite live into a new redemption story. There is no seduction. Boaz discovers Ruth at his feet, and the text says he trembles and asks, who are you? Which likens back to the first Goats and Coats story. Remember, Isaac asks Jacob, who are you? And then trembles. It's the same word. It's echoes of the past. But while one lies and answers, I am Esau, the other tells the truth and says, I am Ruth. And there is no deception. Boaz's history is filled with anti-redemption, betrayal, seduction, taking matters into their own hands. But in the morning, everything is done legally and above board. In fact, the text goes to great pains to tell us just how above board 
Boaz goes. Boaz says, first off, I would love to redeem you, but there's actually someone in my family that's closer to you who has first dibs. So even before I do this, he needs, to, he needs his chance to refuse or, or say yes. So first we need to do that. But as surely as the Lord lives, if he doesn't, I will. And then he says, lie here, because he doesn't want her name to be smeared. If someone caught her sneaking away at midnight from the threshing floor, it would be her undoing. So he says, stay here. Don't let anyone see you. Nothing's going to happen, but I don't want to tarnish your name. And then go in the morning, and it will be done for you. And the whole chapter four, what we're going to look at in the next few weeks here, the whole chapter four is going again and again. He brings in men. He has a witness. He, he does all of these things completely and utterly above board to remind us again and again that he's not the next goat. He will not be the one that deceives. He will be the one that restores. This is a story about a Moabite and a goat. And what will they do? Stay here for the night, he says. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. The goat is no longer the goat. And the Moabite is no longer the Moabite. And their family line, their story, begins a new remnant that leads to Jesus. You see, God can redeem our history. Make sure you write that down because that's what I want you to hear. God redeems our history. See, Boaz literally means a goat is in him as he carried a family curse on his back. But we all have goats in us. Family history, tendencies, Disorders, struggles, taught behavior, thorns in our flesh, existing conditions, crushing anxiety, distancing pride, defeating body image, addicting recognition, bitter anger. Do you know what your goats are? And some of us are Moabites. I think of people like Sam Richbard Sr., who is a patriarch here at Randall Church. And as he moves closer and closer to glory, he leaves generation after generation of followers of Jesus, including fourth-generation Richbard kids downstairs learning about Jesus as we speak. See, there's power in a family line. But that's not everyone's story. That's not the story of the Long family. That's not my story. You see, the Long family are Moabites, We don't come from a line of faithful Jesus followers. We come from a line of alcoholics and womanizers and deadbeats. We've had a generational curse on our back. And then one night in the summer of 1971, Jesus appeared appeared to a 16-year-old, my father, and said, you won't be a Moabite anymore. You no longer live into your family history. I will redeem you and your remnant. And now there are long kids downstairs hanging out with the rich parts. (laughs) 
there's a third generation now of a line that moved and changed. And I pray someday my father will see a fourth generation of Jesus followers. Can I just break for a minute? If, if you feel comfortable, would you raise your hand if you are the first in your family to follow Jesus? Would you just, if you feel comfortable, if you would just raise your hand and say, I am, I'm one of the first in my generation to follow Jesus. Can we give these people a round of applause? They deserve it. You are doing hard, important work. And you're breaking family curses. Because we all have goats. And you might be a Moabite. But you don't have to be defined by it. Because when you unite with Christ, your goats are put to death so that you might learn to slowly begin to live into the redeemed resurrection life that Christ offers you. Your goats are put to death so that you might find the resurrection life here and now. In Romans, Paul says, for if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. But he who has died is free from sin. You are free from your goats. And when we declare loyalty to God, you are no longer a Moabite. You have a new people, as Ruth declares. Your people will be my people now, because your God is my God. Let's invite the band up as we close. Friends, you no longer have to be a Moabite. You no longer have to be a goat. There is a resurrection story happening right here and right now. Jesus offers you with his death and his resurrection on the cross that you can live a new, a new life now. And it won't happen all at once. It's not a snap of the finger and everything's gone. You'll work through that. That's the sanctification process. You'll work through that your whole life, but it can start now. Let's pray, God. Thank you so much for this time. Thank you, God, that we don't have to be stuck in our past. Lord, we thank you for the story of Ruth and Boaz that show us that history and past and generational curses don't have to define us anymore. Thank you for your resurrection power that promises that we can live new. And that we can live with joy and peace and freedom. That we know the answer, who are you? I'm a child of God. And now I belong to a new family. We thank you, Jesus, in your name I pray, amen.